Well, good morning, folks. Uh, so today we're continuing our series in parenting, and uh, we're actually going to talk about parent fails in the Bible, all right, which maybe that's good news for you because you're like, oh, wow, I didn't realize parents have been failing for thousands of years. Like, it makes me feel a little bit more comfortable about my quality as a parent, right? So, so that's, that's maybe good news for you. And, and the stories we're going to look at, we're going to look at three of them. They're not... Uh, you know, little buttoned up moral of the story sort of thing where it comes to a conclusion where it's as if it was like a fairy tale. Uh, it's not, you know, all tightly written where it's as if it was written by Hollywood writers. These are historical people, all right? So it's documenting their lives. And if you think about your life, I mean, very rarely could you think about a season or a moment in your life where, you know, you could just kind of like look at that one moment and then kind of just be like, oh, there's the moral of that story. It doesn't always button up that nicely, right? So these stories aren't necessarily about like, you know, good guys and bad guys. And in fact, biblically, there are no good guys, right? We're all uh, sinners that are saved by grace, you know? So, so these stories are about some people who sometimes make godly decisions, good decisions, and other times they make poor, ungodly decisions. And we're going to just analyze them where, where God happens to let some of these people's lives or the details of of what went on in their families. Uh, he he d- let it be documented in Scripture. So we're going to take a look at it, and, and we'll try to pull a couple life lessons from it. Uh, so, so let's not be too critical of them, but let's, let's learn from their mistakes, and that's actually a, a great way to learn. And in fact, uh, if you're interested in a Bible today, just raise your hand, and someone will be able to get you one. You can take it home. ESV Bibles are what we have, and you can keep those forever. Uh, but today... Because these are uh, more kind of historical passages, they're stories, they're not like little snippets of truth that oftentimes that's what we typically look at here when we're looking in the New Testament in the epistles or Proverbs or Psalms. Uh, So since these are stories, I figured it'd be nice to have some sort of a visual to them. Uh, So we're going to read from the Action Bible, uh, which is a comic book of the Bible, uh, which is going to be pretty cool. So I'll be able to read the, the verses and you'll see it on the screen and uh, it'll work out. So, so, I mean, in reality, this, it's probably made more for like teenage kids, but I like it. It's not the only Bible that I study from, by the way. I mean, well, I don't know. Like, I mean, some churches are like King James only. Maybe like, should I have like a rule? Like, this is the only one. Uh, but, but in reality, uh, so it, it's just going to kind of summarize the story, give you a bit of a visual. So bear with me if you think this is corny or whatever. feels like Sunday school. It's fine. I'm sorry. We won't have any like food or snack at the end, and there won't be any coloring unless you want to do so on your bullets. And actually, I think we have some coloring like crayons back there and stuff if, if your kid needs to be entertained, or if you do. Uh, so let's see. So our first story takes place in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. It's about 1800 BC here, and this is a story about Jacob as a father and his children, all right? And he's got uh, 11 sons at this point. Eventually he has 12, and, and we're going to see kind of this story take place. So let's see if we can get that up on the screen, and I've got to read at pace with this, so here we go. So big dreams based on Genesis 37, 1 through 11. When Isaac dies, Jacob takes over as head of the tribe. He settles his family in his father's land of Canaan. His sons take care of his flocks of sheep. But one day, Joseph tells his father that his brothers have been misbehaving out in the field. I'm ashamed of all of you. 
I need you to be more responsible like your little brother Joseph here. It's okay, Dad. That's what I'm here for. Ah, Joseph, you really are a special kid, right? So it's a little corny there, but all right, here we go. There goes Father with his, his favorite son. I can't believe he told on us. What's next? Father puts him in charge of the flocks. I'll never take orders from Joseph. Now Jacob loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And one day, Jacob gives his beloved son a special gift. Your father had this coat made just for you. For me, it's just like a chieftain's robe. Right, so maybe you can already see the flaw that Jacob has as a parent. Let's find out. So the next time Joseph goes out to the fields, he shows off his new coat. His brothers become even more jealous, but that is nothing compared to how they feel when Joseph says, This reminds me, I had a dream last night. We were all bundling grain, and when we all finished, all of your bundles bowed down to mine. Bowed down to you? Never. But Joseph doesn't get the hint. I had another dream. This time the sun, moon, and stars bowed down to me. Joseph Stop your boasting. Do you really think your mother, brothers, and I will serve you? Could this dream really be from God? Jacob soon forgets his own anger toward Joseph, but the second dream whips the older brother's hatred into a burning rage. He thinks he's a star, huh? I'll show him how far he can fall. Let's see. Next page here. Dreamer for sale, based on Genesis 37, 12 to 36. Joseph's dreams have made his brothers hate him, but his father is blind to the danger. While the older brothers are tending sheep far away in the land of Shechem, Jacob sends Joseph to find them. Go check on the flocks and your brothers, and let me know how things are going. But when the brothers see Joseph approaching... Here comes that arrogant dreamer. I've had enough of his talk. Let's get rid of him. Joseph's brothers pounce on him, strip him of his fine coat, and throw him down an empty well. Then they talk about how to get rid of him for good. Let's just starve him. Wait. See that caravan coming? We could sell Joseph to them as a slave. Then we get rid of him and make some money. So the brothers pull Joseph out of the empty well and drag him to the caravan. This boy is our slave, but he talks too much for our liking. How much money would you give us for him? He's a handsome boy. He should bring a good price in Egypt. Eh, he looks soft. Most I could offer... 15 shekels. But, but I'm... Keep still, slave. <laughs> See, he, he's always talking. Look, 20 shekels, and you've got a deal. So clearly the parent isn't the only one at fault here. But Reuben has been watching the sheep and trying to figure out how to save Joseph. But the caravan is well out of sight by the time Reuben discovers what the brothers have done. Where is Joseph? What have you done with him? 
We sold him uh, to some traders bound for Egypt. Joseph can annoy foreigners for a change. Here's your share of the money. Sold him? Oh, oh no, what will we tell father? We'll smear Joseph's coat with goat's blood. Father will blame wild animals. Back at home, the brothers carry out their cruel plan. We found this bloody coat, but we're not sure whose it is. Do you think it's... It's Joseph's. A lion must have killed him. Joseph, my son, my son. While Jacob mourns the death of his beloved son, Joseph is sold at auction in Egypt. Look, this boy is strong and handsome. He'll make a fine slave, even in the king's palace. How much am I bid? 30 shekels. So the story continues on from here throughout pretty much the rest of the, chap- uh, the book of Genesis. So I'd encourage you to go check that out on your own time. And like I said, it doesn't necessarily wrap up here, but we want to just use this as a case study to analyze the way Jacob the father dealt with the situation. And like I said, clearly he wasn't the only one at fault. The, the, the burden of that sin, right, of wanting to kill him and sell him into slavery or whatever, that was on the brothers, right? That was all on them. But the father still did something to provoke those brothers towards that attitude, where he did something that kind of pushed them in that direction. And, and let's look at the particular failure that he made as a parent. In, in Genesis 37, it said this, Now Israel, which was uh, Jacob's other name, it says, Loved Joseph more than any of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So the issue here is that Jacob favored one of his sons. And actually, not even just more than an individual brother. It said loved him more than all of the brothers. It sounds like their cumulative worth was uh, diminished. And, and this uh, behavior on the part of the parent, it's something that happens often. It's something that maybe you've experienced growing up. Uh, but it's something that can provoke these feelings of, of jealousy and hatred. And it's not actually any better for the one who is favored, that it can also cause all sorts of issues for them growing up as well. And, and this is actually something that uh, we see, you know, this natural father do. But I want to let you know that, that God, our Heavenly Father, does not behave this way. This is something that he, in fact, condemns. In Romans chapter 2, verses 6 and 11, there's a big gap there, so you can go read that on your own time, but it says, He, God, will render to each one according to his works. For God shows no partiality. So first point here is that it's, it's okay to reward someone or reward a child when they do something right. All right, there's nothing wrong with that. It says even God will reward each one according to his works. It's okay to punish a child when they're disobedient or when they need to be disciplined, right? Whatever the case may be. That, there's nothing wrong with that. But the issue happens when, when one child is given favoritism or partiality over the others. And, and the good news is, is that, that God thinks that's wrong and God doesn't act that way towards us. Right? So, so God doesn't play favorites. Right? God is impartial. In fact, there's a bunch of verses I put on the bulletin that you can go read on your own time that talk about how God is impartial. All right? So God loves us all the same. 
And, and that's one of the challenges that we have as parents is that, that oftentimes we'll tend to maybe love a more obedient kid than a more rebellious one, right? Or maybe you'll love a kid because of their gender, like, oh, there's daddy's girl sort of thing, where you're, you know, softer or more affectionate towards one than another. Or you'll, uh, typically the case is that um, an older child will be granted more privileges than the others ever got, and a younger child will be granted more affection than the others ever got. And the oldest and the youngest typically end up, uh, they're the only ones that ever lived alone with their parents because the other ones weren't there for a season, right? So there's all sorts of different things that, that can happen. And in fact, even uh, psychology and even Dr. Phil picks up on this and he's got articles and things that you can read. I've got a Psychology Today article on the, on the bulletin as well. But, but this, this attitude of favoritism is something that it's easy to fall into, but we have to guard our hearts from. So don't be partial. Don't practice favoritism. And like I said, God doesn't play favorites. So, so one thing to think about here is, is that even if you aren't a follower of Jesus, right? If you're not a believer, the good news is that God loves you just as much as he loves me, right? There's absolutely no difference in God's love. And, and even if someone never trusts Jesus, they never become a Christian, God still loves them as much as he loves any believer, right? So God's love is, is established. It's something that he's given to us. It's not something that we can earn more of. It's something that he's just given freely to us all, right? So much to the, the point where he was willing to, to come down on this earth and die and suffer that we might be saved. And he did that on an individual basis, Right, that he, he would have considered any of us worth that suffering, even if we were the only one. So, so God is, is not partial. God, God does not play favorites. And I know sometimes we can think about like, well, you know, like the people in the Bible, these heroes of the Old Testament or the apostles in the New Testament, it seems like, man, those were pretty special people. But in reality, the only thing that uh, distinguishes them from anyone else is the fact that they, they believed God and they obeyed God. And we, even now in our generation, have equal opportunity to do that. That's something that God gives all of us, that he's, he's always giving us opportunities to, to build faith and build trust in him, right? So it's just a matter of believing God and obeying God that you can then see him show up in your life the same way that he shows up in the lives of these people, right? So God is not some sort of, you know, chronological favoritist where he's like, man, the people back then, they were really special. Or the people that lived when Jesus walked the earth, they were special. No, no, God doesn't treat it that way. And even within the the body of Christ, within the church, there's not supposed to be any favoritism. Where God, right, just because like, you know, like, you know, he's preaching, he must be pretty important. It's like, no, God loves every member of the church equally. Right? He's, he's, he's called us all to different things, to have a different role to play in the church, but he loves us all the same. Right? So it's not like one of us is more important than the others or anything. And so, so that's a, a great thing to know about God. And he expects us as believers to treat each other without favoritism. And in fact, uh, James, Jesus' little brother, uh, wrote a letter to a church after Jesus resurrected. Uh, James ends up becoming a follower of Jesus. He thought Jesus was crazy at first. He's like, why would I ever want to worship my older brother as God? That seems absurd. But once Jesus comes back from the dead, it's like, all right, 
you one up me. That's pretty good. All right. Like, I'll follow that guy. Right? So, so James becomes a, a leader in the church, and this is what he writes to a church. He says, uh, if you really uh, fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The issue that he was correcting in the church in that day was that they would have like a rich person show up at church. They'd be like, hey, here, come sit up front. This is great. You're, oh man, excellent, right? And they would treat them all great. And then there'd be a poor person show up and they'd be like, you can just sit in the back. Or no, actually, no, 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 you can stand, right? And they, they would just show this partiality. Right? So I apologize if, if our church has ever not been welcoming to you or if you've ever had that you know, hint of like, oh man, these people are kind of like exclusive. That's not the sort of thing that we want. Right? The church isn't supposed to just be some club where we exclude people. Right? So, so we're not supposed to show partiality even in the church. So not only in the context of family, not in the context of God loving us, and not in the context of us loving each other should there ever be partiality or favoritism. Let's see, the next story that we're going to look at uh, fast forwards about 800 years. This is 1100 BC. This is after the slavery in Egypt. This is after Moses, right, delivers the slaves and they go through 40 years in the wilderness. This is after Joshua leads them into the promised land and they conquer these cities and, and establish their new community and their culture. Right, this is after the, the years of the judges, and this is at the very moment or season when God is about to allow the people to establish a king over themselves. And this story is about this guy, Eli, who's a priest. He's a religious leader in his day, and things don't go well for him and his family. So we're, let's take a look at this. This is Eli's story. Let's put it up on the screen. <coughs> it says, wake up call, based on 1 Samuel 1 to 3. In the hundreds of years since the Israelites settled in the promised land of Canaan, they often turned from God to worship heathen idols. As a result, their priests have become corrupt, and they are dominated by their enemies, the Philistines. The priests no longer serve God's people with merciful hearts. At the Lord's house in Shiloh, Eli, the high priest, watches the faithful come to worship. He notices a woman, and suddenly he becomes angry. Her lips are moving, but she is not saying anything. Another drunk who needs to lay off the wine... Angrily, he accuses her. No, I'm not drunk. I'm unhappy. And in my sorrow, I poured out my heart to God, asking him to help me. I'm sorry for my hasty judgment. Go in peace, Hannah, and may God grant you what you have prayed for. O Lord Almighty, if you will have pity on my misery and give me a son, I will dedicate him to you for all his days. God does answer Hannah's prayer. When her little boy is old enough, she brings him to Eli. When I asked God for his son, I promised that he would serve the Lord all his life. So I have brought him here to be trained in God's house. His name is Samuel. God bless you, Hannah. I will teach your son to be a servant of the Lord. Samuel stays with Eli and e eagerly learns to serve God. Each year when Hannah and her husband come to worship, she brings Samuel a new coat. It's just like a priest's robe. Thank you, mother. Old Eli is proud of Samuel. As Samuel works in the temple, he shows his devotion to God. 
unlike Eli's two sons, who sin against God and cheat the people, even though they're priests. One night, Samuel hears a voice. Samuel. Samuel rushes to find out what Eli wants, but Eli hadn't called him, so he goes back to bed. Again, a voice calls him, Samuel. Samuel goes running to Eli's room again. Eventually, Eli realizes that God is speaking to Samuel. He instructs Samuel to answer the Lord and to listen to whatever message God has for him. The next morning, Eli asks Samuel what God told him. Samuel doesn't want to repeat the message to Eli, but Eli insists. God said that Eli's sons are wicked, and Eli has not tried to stop them. They will be punished for the evil they have done. It is true. He is the Lord, and he will do what he knows is right. Word spreads that God has spoken to Samuel. As Samuel grows up, all of Israel knows that he is a true prophet of God. If only our priests were men of God like Samuel, how long must we suffer under the lying and cheating of Eli's sons? Mark my words, they will bring about their own destruction. So Eli's sons were mentioned in this story, but they're actually the ones that, you know, had all sorts of issues going on. And I'm sure you guys are wondering, like, oh, man, I got to find out what is this scandal about, right? This, what was like the talk of the town? What, were, what was in the tabloids back in 1100 BC? What were they talking about? Because something's going wrong, right? Church leadership was all askew and messed up. And I'll, I'll let you guys know so you can tweet about it later. Uh, it turns out that that's, uh, Eli's sons, these two guys, they were, they were corrupt. They were in a position of leadership, uh, but they were, they were cheating people. They were, they were stealing from God's offering. All right? and, and even though God intended the priesthood to, to benefit and be taken care of from the offering, they were taking what didn't belong to them. All right? They were taking things that actually were supposed to belong to God. And sometimes they even took it by force. In 1 Samuel 2.17 it says, Thus the sin of the young men, Eli's sons, was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So, so this is as, as if there was like, right, some embezzling happening in a church, right? This is something that, just like we get upset when we hear news like that happening, God also gets upset about that sort of thing, right? God is upset anytime leadership abuses their authority for their own gain, right? So, so God got upset about this situation. And think about how that makes us feel when we hear that, or I don't know if you've ever been at a church where there's been mismanagement in the finances. It makes us wonder, like, you know, like, what, what's going on? Did, did God know this was happening? Like, am I supposed to keep giving? And it, it kind of dissuades you. It, like, hurts you from, it makes you not want to give, right? And, and that's why, why God was upset with this. And, and that's what the second part of that verse, it says, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. That men there is different than the young men at the beginning of the verse. That's talking about the people of God, that because these young men, these young priests were mismanaging the finances, it caused the people of God to treat the offering with contempt, right? It made them despise generosity, it made them not want to partake in, in giving offerings to the temple because they knew the leadership was, was corrupt. 
right? So that's something that, that just like how we get upset about that, that we have this sense of justice, like it shouldn't be this way. God also gets upset about that sort of thing. But that, that's not the only thing that these guys were doing. Uh, so not only was there a financial you know, issue and scandal, but in 1 Samuel 2.22, it says, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the woman who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Whew. Yeah, so just, you know, biblical term there, they were, they were sleeping with him, right? So, uh, so there's a sex scandal and this financial scandal all happening at the same time, and God is upset about this, right? God's not happy with this. So, so these guys not only should not have been in leadership, they shouldn't have been on the financial team, and they probably shouldn't be greeters to the church, because that, that's like where this is going on, apparently. So, so all sorts of issues going on, but, but even though these guys were priests, Eli was expected to take care of this situation. God had an expectation for Eli to, to deal with this problem, right? It fell on his shoulders, partly because he was the dad and partly because he was the high priest, right? So it's kind of got like this dichotomy there where it's a family issue, but also a business practice problem that's got to be dealt with as far as that goes. Uh, and, and in fact, God gets pretty upset with Eli's family um, and in 1 Samuel 3.13, when God kind of states his, his judgment, he says, And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever. All right, so that's, that's like final. Like his household forever is being punished here. Uh, for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. So God puts a lot of the responsibility on Eli, right? Back in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 22, it said that Eli kept hearing these things, right? People were complaining, like, these guys are mismanaging the giving, right? These guys are sleeping with these ladies. Like, this isn't right, Eli. And Eli's like, yeah, I've got it taken care of. Don't worry about it, right? And he, he just keeps ignoring the problem, all right? And, and, and Eli was supposed to deal with it, right? God expected him to restrain, to stop it, to discipline, do something to stop this problem from continuing, all right? And, and in fact, to Eli's credit, at the end of chapter two, he does warn his sons, like, listen, like, you guys aren't sinning against people. You're sinning against God. Like, you got to sort this out. He warns them, but he doesn't do anything about it, all right? And, and, and God expected him to. And, and one of the things, I mean, this is a little bit of a muddled situation. The severity of God's judgment is because these people were in leadership, Okay, where God expects more from leaders because if you're mistreating and misleading people, you're misrepresenting him, right? And you're offending people. You're being a stumbling block before they can even get to Jesus, right? So God holds leaders in really high standards, all right? So that's part of the reason why the punishment is so severe there. But, but even if these guys weren't priests, there still would be similar judgment, just the severity of it would be less, right? Because God is a just God. But the thing that I see here is that if, if you don't discipline your kids, eventually God will. All right? Eventually God will discipline them. And, and now remember, the, the crazy thing is that God loves these two guys, Eli's sons, more than Eli loves them. Right? God completely loves these guys. But he still has to deal with the problem because he is holy, because he is just. And even though this is like a severe punishment on them, 
I want to let you know like, that, that God is still loving and merciful. And the Bible says in Ezekiel twice that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Right? So God's not like, gotcha, bam, like smited, you know, or whatever he does. I don't know. But like, he's not that way about it. He's sorrowful about it. He doesn't celebrate that sort of, of judgment occurring. But he does it for the sake of his love for the rest of the people and the people that were being abused and cheated. So, so God still responds justly at all levels, right? And, and the good news is that God is, is merciful. He's slow to anger. He's rich in love. So it takes him a long time to get this upset, all right? So he's merciful towards us when we fail, but we've got to make sure like, we're dealing with our problems and not just ignoring them. And, and what's crazy is that God loves our kids more than we love our kids, Right? God loves them way more than I could ever fathom loving them. Right? That God, in, when he does discipline, right, it's because he loves them. And, 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 and he is pursuing their hearts. Right? The Holy Spirit is pursuing the hearts of people. God is just after your kids. He wants to have an eternal relationship demonstrating his love towards them, pouring out blessings on them for all eternity. Right? So God is, is all about that. And one of, the, one of the other points that I, I see in the story is that you can love your kids and disagree with the sin that they're doing, right? You don't have to just tolerate and accept whatever, right, issues they have. You can speak against them. You can correct. You can warn. You can discipline, right? And that's what God expected of Eli. And, and last week I taught all about discipline, so if you want to hear more about that stuff, you can check out that sermon. It's all online. We also talked about it at the missional communities this past week. But, but the point is that, that discipline comes from a heart of love. All right? it, it's, it's a belief that you are investing in the person, believing that they're going to change for the better. All right? And that's what God wants us to do as parents, that, that we are shepherding their hearts. And that's the thing that Eli, as a father, did not do. And I don't know why those were his motives. I don't know if he just was like, man, I don't want to make my sons upset. Like, I'm just going to let them keep doing their thing. Or just like had this like false sense of like, I love my kids so much they could do anything wrong and I'll still love them. Which is true. We still should love them, but we still need to deal with the problem at hand. So, so in terms of God towards us, God disciplines us because he loves us because we are his. And he wants us to discipline our children for similar reasons. Now, now at the end of the story, what he did to that family, uh, that punishment, wasn't discipline at that point. Okay, that was God's kind of final judgment on these guys. So there would have been discipline that was happening all along the way, uh, but God, knowing their rebellious hearts were set, like these guys weren't going to change, he's able to bring that sort of judgment. All right, so there's a difference between God's discipline and God's judgment. God disciplines those who he loves, those who are his, right? So in his family, he'll, he'll discipline us, but it's not a forever thing. It's because he wants us to grow and be more fruitful as individuals. So the, the last story we're going to look at, we fast forward 75 years now, and Eli is an old man, all right? And he's actually a primary character in this last, this last story. And this is a story about Jesse, and he's got eight sons, and one of them you'll probably know about if you've, you've done Sunday school before. You might recognize his name. Actually, I think, I think most culture knows, knows who his son is, but we'll see. Uh, but yeah, let's take a look at Jesse's story. Get that up on the screen here. So God's new king. 
based on 1 Samuel 16, 1 to 13. God sends his prophet Samuel to Bethlehem, where he is greeted by Jesse, the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Samuel, oh, oh no, what have we done wrong? Don't worry, I haven't come here to judge you. I've come to give an offering to God. Jesse, God wants me to choose one of your sons for a special service. Will you bring your sons to me? Of course. This is my oldest son, Eliab. He is so tall and strong. Surely this is the one that God has chosen. But Samuel hears God's voice. You can only see how tall and handsome he is. I can see his heart. He is not the one. I'm sorry, Eliab is not the one. Call another. Abinadab. And then he proceeds to call all of his kids, lines them up, right? And says, seven of Jesse's sons appear before Samuel, but not one of them is chosen. Have, have I seen all your sons? No, the youngest one, David, is tending the sheep. I'll send one of my sons and a servant for him. I wonder why Samuel insists on seeing David. This whole thing is a mystery. Jesse's son finds his brother in the fields outside Bethlehem. Hey, there's David. Look, a lion, and David doesn't see it. So here we go. This is the, the action part of the action Bible. All right. So just like his great-grandparents, David is honorable, faithful, and brave. His keen ears hear a swish in the tall grass, and he whirls. A lion. It's all like, roar. And then he's like, swish. Kaplunk. Right? There we go. David, you killed it. The lion, right? I also had to kill a bear a few days ago. Nothing is going to hurt my father's sheep if I can help it. So I don't know, you guys probably heard of David before, right? Goliath maybe, giant slayer, right? So you're a brave shepherd, David, but hurry home. Samuel wants to see you. I've brought a man to stay with the sheep. The Lord's prophet wants to see me, but why? On the hike back to the city, David continues to wonder. But when Samuel sees the young shepherd boy, he hears God say, this is my chosen one. And in front of Jesse and his sons, Samuel blesses David and anoints his head with oil. The Lord bless you, for you will be the next king of Israel. So, so you guys probably are familiar with who David is. Maybe he ends up being this great king in Israel. And maybe the lesson you think that should be extrapolated from this is don't let your kids play with lions, right? Like, right, keep them safe. Because actually, this is the second story we heard where, like, you know, Jacob thought his kid got killed by a lion, and now David's actually fighting lions. So yeah, keep your kids safe. That's a good lesson, but that's not the one we'll focus on. Um, in fact, uh, we see this behavior in Jesse, the father. But it's more directly apparent in the heart of Samuel, right? When Samuel is, is looking at the outward appearance of of Jesse's sons, right? Where he's judging like, all right, who would be a good king? That guy looks strong. That guy's tall, right? That's probably going to be the next king. But God corrects that attitude and behavior, right? In, in fact, let's see, where am I? Here we go. He says, uh, 
in chapter 16, verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so that's one of the the things that I'm pulling from this is that don't judge your kids based off of what they look like or how they're acting right now. Because we don't know what God intends for them, right? We don't know what God has called them to do. And it's not necessarily about their ability. It's about God's ability to use them. And in fact, that, that whole scene with the lion chronologically isn't necessarily there in the Bible. Uh, but in the next chapter, David actually uses this story about the lion and the bear to give himself credibility when he's about to face Goliath. And the credibility is not in his own ability, but in God's ability through him. In fact, this is what the Bible says in chapter 17. David says, When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, and I struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair and struck it and killed it. Right? So I think, like, that version is, like, way cooler than just thwing, right? Or whatever, like, like, he's, like, chasing down this animal and, like, bam, get over here. That's my sheep, right? And, like, just bop, right? Whatever. And, and so, like, way cooler. But in verse 37, he says, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine which is Goliath the giant. All right, so David, the reason that he is used by God is, is, is because God is working through him, right? It's not about David's own ability. And that's one of the reasons why we shouldn't just, right, judge our kids based off of what we see right now. That's not the way God looks at them, right? And, and, and even though Jesse didn't necessarily communicate this to David, he didn't say like, nah, you're not important, right? We don't, we don't see that he definitely did limit the opportunities that he gave to David, right? Where he didn't even invite him to show up, right? Uh, Samuel was looking for someone to do something important and Jesse didn't think David had it. Like, he's like, no, I'm not even going to bother mentioning that I have another son, right? And that's why, like, after they go through the seven other sons, like, Samuel's like, I know God called me here for this, but it's not any of these guys, like, is there another son, right? And then Jesse's like, oh, oh yeah, I, d- I do have another son. I didn't think he was all that important though, right? So, so the point is don't, don't judge your kids on what they're meant to do because you don't know, right? And Jesse was clearly wrong because David does become the king, right? And, and we don't know, you know, how this may have affected David. We don't know if this was ever apparent to David, all right, uh, but, but later on, David does end up becoming a bit of a failure as a father in, in his own right, right? He's also a failure as a husband in a lot of ways. And, and some of the things that he faces when he's abandoned by his friends and he's alone and depressed, he ends up having to encourage himself in the Lord, right? So there's, there's different things that could have affected David's life and his mentality, even as an adult, because of the way his parents had treated him. So we don't know necessarily how it might have affected him. But the point is, it's not just a matter of like believing that your kid's going to be an astronaut or the president of the United States, right? It's not believing in just their ability. It's believing in God's ability to use them. And in the Bible, we see that that God doesn't use people based off of their, their talent, right? Or what they're capable of. In fact, in the book of Judges, a couple books before this, uh, God chooses to use this guy Gideon. 
And Gideon, he, he calls Gideon this mighty warrior. And Gideon, he's, he tells God, he's like, I think you're confused because of all of Israel, this entire nation, my tribe is the, the least. It's the weakest. And in my whole tribe, my family is the least. And in my family, I'm the smallest. Like basically like Gideon thinks, God, you're picking the weakest person in my whole country to do something. And God ends up using him to do mighty things. And God loves doing that sort of thing because God is the one that gets the glory. There's no doubt that the person did it in their own strength. It's clearly obvious that God is the one that's at work. So God loves using people who aren't necessarily capable or talented in their own natural strength. Another thing to think about is that God will also use those who are disobedient and rebellious, right? God will use those people. In the, in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 8 or 9, uh, months ago, we looked at the conversion of this guy Saul, who literally was going around with a warrant from town to town to hunt down Christians, to put them in prison, and have them killed. He was literally hunting down Christians and killing them. And that's the guy that Jesus handpicked to be an apostle, to go and spread the gospel to, to, to his known world, right? Where Paul ends up being this huge world missionary and having this huge effect. So, so God is even willing to use the most rebellious, the most stubborn, right? The most wicked by certain accounts of people for his glory. So, so regardless of how talented or not talented you think your kid is, right? Regardless of how rebellious they might be right now, right? Whatever situation that they're in, right? Don't judge that as the final outcome of their life, right? I mean, like, I don't think any of our kids are, like, out there, like, killing Christians right now. And I mean, in reality, like, even if your kid suddenly, like, signed up and flew overseas to go, like, join ISIS to hunt Christians down and kill them, don't give up on them. Like, God, God's not necessarily done with that person, right? He can still turn their heart and use that situation for his glory. So don't give up on your kids. And, and the best way to keep the right mentality about this is to pray for your kids. All right, pray for God's plan in their life. Pray for God's direction in their life. Pray that, that the fruit and the gifts of the Spirit will be in operation in your kids. Right, that God's going to be doing mighty things through them. Right, pray for their humility. Pray for their obedience. Pray for uh, their future spouse. Whatever, whatever they've got, you can pray for your kids. And that's going to give you the right mentality when thinking about them where you won't be judging them based on where they're at. You'll be looking at them with the eyes that God has, right? Where God will bring your heart closer to where his heart is and how he sees people, right? So that's, that's what we need to do when we think about our kids. Let's have the, the band come on up. And the point is that we all fail, all right? If we have kids, we all will fail as parents, with those kids. And culturally, I think about it that, that there's something about our culture that we enjoy watching like epic fail videos on YouTube, right? Or sharing things on Facebook of like epic engineering fails. And it's like, those bridges don't even meet. Ah, that's ridiculous. They're so dumb. I'm so smart, right? Like we just like feeling better about ourselves, I think. I'm not sure entirely why. But, but we like looking at the failures of other people and making ourselves feel better. But in reality, we're, we all have failures. All right, we all have things that we're, we're going to do that aren't going to be successful. And consider this, that 
what if we don't improve for the rest of our lives? What if, what if like, where we are right now, like, we never grow, and we're just the same way for the rest of our lives? And what if God had summarized our entire life in something like a chapter of the Bible, like we've seen in some of these, these people's experiences? Like, what would God say about us? Like, if God had to summarize your life in a handful of verses, what would he say? Like, if I never grow as a parent, like, what if he said, like, then there was Brian who neglected his kids because he's always on Facebook and binge-watching Netflix. Like, wouldn't that be, like, a shameful thing to read? Like, God, like, couldn't you just, like, pretended that didn't happen? Like, oh, man. Like, that'd be embarrassing. Or, or there, there was Brian who, who forgot about his kids because he was so busy with work and he drove them away and didn't build their relationship. Right? There's things that we should grow in and develop that we need to be improving. Right? And, and, and just think about that, that it's not all weighted on how successful we are as parents. All right? It's not all on our shoulders. Because God is the one that is leading people to him. God is the one that is pursuing the hearts of everyone. Right? God is the one that loves them more than we love them. And it's, it's not a matter of how well we parented our kids. Right? Because it's not whether or not they're obedient at that age or whether or not we're obedient as adults because that's not the metric of, of whether or not God uses us, right? It's, it's not how well we obey or how little we fail, but God's going to use us that the power of God in their lives is not in their obedience, not in your abilities as a parent, but in God's gospel. The good news that, that Jesus, right, that God, who is a just God, had to bring judgment because of our failures, and he chose to walk on this earth as a man, as, as Jesus, to take that punishment that we deserved. Right? That we could have forgiveness and that we could be reconciled back to our Heavenly Father. That is the life-changing thing. And you can't get that through good parenting. All right? it's, it's not on your shoulders. So when you fail, just repent. Try to grow. Continue to change. Right? Just continue to improve. Trust God to be the one that's got your back and to forgive you when you mess up. And repent to your kids when you fail. All right? But, but one of the crazy things is if you keep reading in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, or the, the books of the Chronicles of Kings, we see uh, godly people who were raised by wicked parents. And we see wicked people who were raised by godly parents. Right? So it's, it's not on the parents whether or not those people turn out right. It's, it's their, own obe- their, their own hearts before God, whether or not they respond to the love that God bestows on them, right? So, so it's something that you pray about as, as parents. You pray for your kids, right? You teach them the gospel so that God can have that work in their heart. But don't feel like a failure when you do fail. Just repent, and God can be at work in you and in your kid's life. Amen. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, God, that, that you... You love us. That, God, you don't play favorites. That, that you love us so much. I thank you that you discipline us, that you care about our growth. That, God, you love us just the way we are, but you love us way too much to leave us that way. That, God, you're interested in seeing us have, have fruitful and productive lives where we can truly love you and, and love our neighbors as ourselves. I thank you, God, that, that you believe in us. That, God, you don't judge us based on our current ability or our talents. But, God, you know that you can use us when we're submitted to you and when we obey you. 
So God, I ask that you would just inspire our hearts, that God, that our relationship with you would grow stronger. I pray that you would uh, challenge parents to grow, that the way they invest in their kids, the way they care and love and communicate to their kids would be similar to the way that you are with us. God, I ask that you would strengthen families and marriages here. And I ask that you would use us as a light to this community, that we could demonstrate the power of your word, the power of the gospel that can bring salvation to all those who would believe. And I thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.